And it may seem foreign to people who aren't doing that work right now. But if I'm making, let's say, anti-racist choices in my daily life or, or really proactively choosing to support certain communities, as an individual that begins as an educator for me to bleed into my job. And so we want that same intentionality to be brought into the institution at every level. Um, so whether you're teaching and it's how you tailor your examples or your coursework or your delivery, um, or it's the administration or when Marin and I sit down to make policies, that same intentionality that we take in our everyday life and our everyday practices is really a foundation for how we approach our work at the institution. And so we are trying to change, I think, too, how people look at approaching intersectionality and inclusion, not just diversity, but it, I don't want you to just have a seat at the table. I want you to feel like not only am I listening to you, but you can run the meeting. everyone, and welcome to this first full-length IngeniousU episode of the new year. IngeniousU is the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers, and this episode is no exception. It's not every day or even every decade that you hear of a new university starting up. For a nonprofit, it's not the most lucrative business venture, and the startup costs and the regulatory hurdles are enormous. But Caitlin O.R.B. Carter and Marin Rosenbach are determined to build a new kind of higher education institution in the Seattle area. In this first episode of 2022, we speak with these bold founders of Wright University, and we hear firsthand about their vision for a university that is rooted in equity and social justice. With a PhD in Spanish and Portuguese and several years of teaching experience, Caitlin has gained a reputation as a highly engaging and innovative teacher with a passion for helping students navigate the obstacles created by higher ed systems and bureaucracy. Marin is a nurse by training and a business owner who returned to college as an adult learner to earn both her bachelor's and her master's degrees. Marin believes education is a human right and equity must be met at every level of the organization. We will include links to their bios, but for now, Caitlin and Marin, I am so pleased to welcome you to the Ingenious You community. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank yeah. you. You are welcome. Now, it's not every day or even every decade, uh, is it, that we hear about a college or a university startup, especially now with the rate of college closures and mergers in this country on the increase. The idea of starting a new nonprofit higher ed institution is a bit daunting. And yet, the two of you have committed to do just that. So, I'd like to start by asking you what the backstory is here. Uh, can you tell us something about your respective professional journeys and how you came to make the decision to start uh, a new university? Sure, yeah, I've been in higher ed. I took a much more traditional path through my education. Um, I didn't take any breaks, went straight through. And it's been more than a decade and that time, teaching um, and being a student culminating in everything that's changing and unfolding in the social and racial justice landscape over the past few years with my time, you know, really beginning my career outside of grad school, um, really pushed this idea of starting something new um, and, and really pushing in a bigger capacity to change the landscape. And I, I've, Marin knows this, I've always said sort of jokingly to friends and, and family, well, if I had my own school, and I think it's a, a pretty common joke in academia. We joke, like, if I got to run things, this is how I would do it. And when the pandemic hit and I realized how many people didn't really know how to adapt and needed that aid, and, and I stepped up to do that for the department I was working with. I have a lot of experience online and with virtual teaching, so... I did some consulting for the school I was at with how to adapt virtually. So um, in this era of consulting and adaptation and social unrest and revisiting um, human rights conversations and watching my students go through that, I really decided if I'm gonna do this, it's now. I, I'd love to make big changes. We know change can be really slow sometimes in academia. 
And how can I do this and who can I do that with? Um, and the answer to that was Marin. <laughs> so I came to Marin um, with a, a ton of ideas and a lot of things, obviously, that we had a lot of meetings early on that we thought, well, this is really a conversation for two years from now, but let's get our bearings. And, and we started to work through what, what would we want education to look like and who would it serve um, and how would we do that? And um, Marin had just uh, wrapped up her time with her master's degree. And so I came to her saying, have you found work and what do you want to do? And she, she was so enthusiastic um, and, and jumped right in. She was like, this sounds perfect. Well, and the two of you have known each other. So there's a backstory to, the, to, to your relationship, right? So, you know, we always kind of go back and forth and talk about this, like, <laughs> it's a very funny story, actually. Um, Caitlin was my professor in my undergrad when I went back as a non-traditional student, oh. um, as an adult, after, after we left that, you know, kind of professional, um, you know, um, relationship, we kept in touch and, you know, I was always really interested in her, her journey and her in mine, um, and, we actually ended up having a lot of things in common. I think we both have very similar um, ethics and morals, and um, we just always kind of naturally got along very well. Um, I, you know, experienced her teaching for firsthand and she hands down was one of the best professors I ever had. I mean, her commitment to students and to treating every student as a human and not, you know, um, not using differences or using differences actually to elevate everybody rather than, um, you know, kind of zoning in on just that very traditional student. Like she said, she had a very traditional path, but she has this gift of kind of embracing those that don't have traditional paths. Um, so that's that's how we met, you know, and we and and since then um, we've started a completely new professional relationship um, in this in this venture. And it's been really great because I think it lends to how well we work together um, because we've seen each other both kind of in that um, student teacher role and friend role and now, you know, colleagues. So it's been, a, you know, and I think a testament there are two women working together. It's, it's, um, it's really cool to see how you can grow from a relationship, which, you know, started off in sort of a power dynamic, right? Um, but that I never felt that way with Kaylin. That's a great segue for my next question. I wanted to ask you about the vision that you have for Wright University. And I'm also curious about the name um, and Caitlin, you're right. I think many of us who've been in academe for a long time, we've all had those moments where we thought, oh, if only we could start our own uh, way of doing things and what would we name it? So I'm curious, how did you come up with the name Wright University and what's your vision for the institution? Yes, yeah, so we actually, um, it was a journey to get to the name and it, it is something really personal, but we started with okay, are there any regional names that make sense? And there are a, lots, a plethora of schools in the Pacific Northwest. So um, a lot of regional or geographical type names had already been uh, taken. And then we looked at, well, um, should it be some sort of representation of the two of us? Is there a hybrid name? And, and I don't think that's really in either of our personalities that felt, I don't think either of us really wanted to display ourselves that way. And, and in, the school isn't about us in that capacity. Um, so that felt sort of, I don't know, like too much ego to do that. And, and we worked through like, is there a hybrid possibility? And then we got to um, Wright is my maternal grandmother's maiden name. Um, and there's a long line of educators on my mother's side. My great, great grandmother, I have her secretary's desk and her Cambridge certificates on the wall. And so there's a huge education tie to the maternal side of my family. And my grandmother was an award-winning administrator in Portland. Um, and what really stood out, you know, and there's people can read what we've written on our website, um, about her career, but I think even in just that write-up, what really stands out is that she was so dedicated to individuality and bespoke tailoring of education. 
and she was in K-12, she did elementary and middle school administration, but she really honed in on what does this family need that's different that would make this student succeed? What does this student not have access to? And she was the first administrator in her district that was a female. So I think mm -hmm. she really got really before her time, um, a lot of the conversations that we're still having today and still trying to sort through. And so that I think for Marin and I really resonated and felt like that's a really wonderful namesake because this is about bespoke paths to success and equity in education and how we construct that. Yeah, I would certainly add to that because she, Caitlin leaves out my favorite part of her grandmother's story is that she went back to school after raising a family. And this was a career that she started later in her life um, and did that non-traditional path, which obviously resonates with me. Um, you know, I went to nine different institutions in order to get my bachelor's degree and then quickly went on to my master's degree. And for a plethora of reasons, you know, I I started a family young. My my husband was in the Navy. We traveled a lot. Um, so, you know, every time I went, we moved someplace new, I had to start over essentially. And, you know, credits weren't accepted. And, um, you know, I write about that in, in a blog that's on, on Right Rights, the beginning of my journey. It goes much further than that. But I think we're looking to attract students like myself, like Caitlin's grandmother, you know, and other people that have, you know, just historically been excluded or, you know, it's been more challenging. There's been a lot more barriers to access um, for education. And, you know, I say it all the time. I strongly believe that education is a human right. Uh, and I don't think it should be as hard as it is. Now, now others have tried to do this and have uh, not always been successful. So what gives you confidence in your vision, what the business model is that you are putting in place and in a really practical way, how do you even go about projecting the cost of starting up a new university? Cost is, <laughs> is a huge one out the gate and it's, it's research-based. It, there's some personal knowledge from our experience at, educa at education institutions and being in budget meetings and seeing how things were run um, and what the shortcomings were and, and having some of that knowledge, some of its research from public institutions that we have financial information available. And, and then what we do is try to make up the gaps and a, a, a account for those gaps. So if we know there's a budget crisis, we know by how much, then we, we compare the size of our goal for our institution and there are those institutions and we adjust accordingly. So we did that many times over <laughs> to come up with what do we think really makes sense, especially keeping in mind that there are so many budget crises and, and that numbers may not reflect the real situation of the institution and how do we accommodate for that? We also have to accommodate for changes we're making. Um, and so thinking about what will benefits cost us if our benefits look different than another institution or what will salaries cost us if our salaries look different from another institution. Um, and so it's been a lot of math, <laughs> a lot of trial and error. <laughs> and we've come up with a window where we think we'll be able to function um, and, and we'll put it to the test. Yeah, well, and I would imagine that given that your vision is different as well, you're not just you're not just putting in place an institution that looks like the college or university down the street, you are implementing a new kind of institution. So in some ways, um, you're also creating a business model that perhaps is unique, which makes the, the challenge uh, all that more significant, but also exciting. I, I wanna ask you, um, and I, this is gonna, it may feel like I'm pushing a little bit, but I'm, I'm, I would imagine our listeners may be wondering, um, why, uh, why it's necessary to start a brand new university from the ground up to achieve your mission? Aren't there other less risky ways to, to go about doing this? So why go all the way to start a brand new university and why now? Sure, yeah, I think the time is always going to be now as long as there's inequity in education and inequity in access to education. So we, we know that that's true. So we need to work to change it. Um, 
And, and that's, I think, you know, Marin and I were discussing this a little bit last week. It's almost like, well, the time has been now, <laughs> you know, we, this, this is work that is being done by other people in, in different capacities or, or maybe on a smaller scale. Um, and so now we're, we found a way we can contribute and to continue that work. As far as, you know, why now and, and why is this different? You know, there's so many institutions that try to change things from, you know, in, internally, but it's all done in a very piecemeal kind of way, right? So they're going for kind of this slow incremental change, which, you know, we know historically works, but for some reason, it, it hasn't, in, in particularly in academia. So, you know, I think rather than this kind of top-down approach, we're really trying a bottom-up approach. And, you know, we are not experts in all fields of starting a university, right? But, you know, we're, we're trying, we're consulting with people we're, we're seeking out knowledge that we don't have. We're find, trying to find people, like we're trying to build our community. We want people to come on board with us and, and help build something new and exciting and innovative. And, you know, I think I use health metaphors a lot because my background is in nursing. And, uh, you know, we say a lot about, you know, we want to treat the illness, not the symptoms. And the way we see it being done time and time again is a very symptomatic approach instead of going to the root cause of what is causing this illness. I know, I, I know you just had on Dr. Tia Brown McNair and she's yeah. phenomenal. And I think that's a really good example that, that we share some inspiration with her, that idea of, of watching people talk the talk and hearing it. And I think that's very much what Maren's saying, right? That it, it can produce very glacial change. And and Tia and, and her colleagues have produced a phenomenal book and, and a great way of approaching that. Um, and this is just another, another way. And one of the reasons we haven't yet, you know, we, we get told all the time, well, why don't you like merge with another institution? And it's because we don't want to function under someone else's umbrella. You know, we're really, we really want to be able to have the autonomy to create change when we want to create change and the ways in which we see we need it. Um, and have some more freedom instead of functioning within a system that already exists that maybe isn't adapting as quickly as, as Marin and I are challenging it to change. Well, and one of the things Tia talks a lot about, and I'm really glad you brought her up, is intentionality and how important it is when you are uh, doing work in the DEI space to, uh, one, be very clear about your language and two, to be very intentional about what it is that you're trying to accomplish. And I'm hearing that same kind of intentionality uh, in what both of you are, are talking about. And, and so I want to ask you to uh, describe uh, in a little bit more detail uh, how exactly Wright University is going to be different from other institutions. Um, I think you make a compelling case as to, in order to accomplish your vision, you, you will have a real advantage in terms of starting from scratch and building it from the ground up. But that does require a, 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 a high amount, a high level of intentionality around all of the practices and everything that you do. So, you know, I'm thinking about things like um, who you anticipate will enroll in the institution, who you're gonna recruit, who the students will be, um, how the pedagogy will be enacted, how, how faculty will teach, who you're gonna even, who will you uh, uh, hire to be the faculty in the classroom, um, whether the learning experience will be delivered in a particular way, what the curriculum will look like, and on and on. So can, can you speak to what your thinking is at, that, at this point about some of those practices? I have so many answers. I'm sure Marin, your mind is rolling too. So um, I'm gonna start tackling bits and pieces and, and come back to that prompt if we leave something out. I, you know, you started with intentionality and language use too. So I would like to address that um, before we get into some of the specifics. I, Tia, get, and she gets to it in your podcast, talks about the intentionality for each individual. And that does tie into who we think we'll see at the university. And so part of that is how we live our lives every day. And it may seem foreign to people who aren't doing that work right now, but if I'm making 
let's say anti-racist choices in my daily life or, or really proactively choosing to support certain communities, as an individual that begins as an educator for me to bleed into my job. And so we want that same intentionality to be brought into the institution at every level. Um, so whether you're teaching and it's how you tailor your examples or your coursework or your delivery, um, or it's the administration or when Marin and I sit down to make policies, that same intentionality that we take in our everyday life and our everyday practices is really a foundation for how we approach our work at the institution. Um, and language use has been really interesting for us because we've got some very particular terms we utilize or we promote. And, and one that's come up a lot for us, Marin, has been historically excluded. That we name in our mission very intentionally every population we can think of at this moment that we want to serve. Um, and when we, which is really important, and Tia talks about that, right? Let's name the groups. But when that gets reduced by other writers, we so often see the term marginalized. And we work really hard to use terms like historically excluded because that puts agency back in the hands of people who create white people who created academia to serve white male academics. And so marginalized seems um, almost haphazard, like it was an accident. And we know that that's not true. So it, it gives back agency to the people culpable for that to say, these are historically excluded populations and we want to invite them back into this space. Um, and so for us, those are choices every day. And I think that speaks to how we approach certainly the work we have to do right now, which is so much you know, building, policy making, um, but, but it also it can be frustrating sometimes because Marin and I look at that and we're like, oh, that's not how we'd say it. Um, and so we are trying to change, I think, too, how people look at approaching intersectionality and inclusion, not just diversity, but it, I don't want you to just have a seat at the table. I want you to feel like not only am I listening to you, but you can run the meeting. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a free fall. Colleges are closing or merging at an ever-increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Baypath University Doctorate in Higher Ed Leadership and Organizational Studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input and then designed the courses in response. The HELOS program prepares students to become highly effective, self-aware, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. All coursework is online and students receive an abundance of personalized support from peers and from our expert faculty. And through the dissertation and practice, you will learn how to plan and implement a change process to address a real organizational problem. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step by visiting our website at baypath.edu edd. to go a little bit deeper in learning about the nuts and bolts of how you plan to structure the new university. So for example, what about the curriculum? What do you plan to teach? What are you envisioning in terms of what you will offer and why? We are looking to, you know, have a very different approach to building curriculum. Um, of course, some of those traditional things will be there because, you know, ultimately you're going to have students coming in that are going to want to go on to graduate programs such as medical school or law school. And so some of those traditional things will absolutely have to stand so that, you know, we are not hindering them going on professionally. That said, there's a lot that we'd like to change around curriculum. And we say kind of bringing in like the like real world meets 
university instead of university meets real world. Um, you know, there's a lot of graduates out there right now. Um, and this was this was happening even before the pandemic that are graduating swamped with debt. They, they don't have the skill set um, that employers are looking for. And, you know, they're not getting jobs. And that's not okay. So, you know, we're really trying to look at curriculum and say, okay, you know, first of all, uh, these, these populations that, you know, we list in our, in our um, statement from, from research, what are areas that, that they typically like to go into? What, what, you know, fields of work do they pursue? So those are going to be very important to us. And that is very research-based. Um, the other part of it is just some kind of some of our real world experience as we've graduated. What are the things, you know, when we had our first jobs or had that interview that were very clear was a hindrance to getting the job or to excelling at the job once you have it. Um, well, and I think- if I, if I can add Marin, or just being mm -hmm. a functioning adult, like there's yeah. some classes, it's sort of like my mom was like, oh, I really wish you had a home ec class. You know, like there are some basic <laughs> skills that, that it's not even always about the job, it's about can you function in the world? Yeah, and we're calling that excellence planning, right? So it's, you know, something to put you out there. You know, how do you do your taxes? We, we talk all the time, you know, like starting a nonprofit, like how do you start a nonprofit? You know, it's, it's things, you know, I've started a business before and a lot of what I've learned in life has been self-taught, but you know what? Hey, it would have been awesome to have had this in a classroom and to be able to debate and really critically think through some of these problems and you know because sometimes you get swamped with so much of the details that you don't have time you just kind of you know go with the process instead of saying hey wait a minute maybe there's a different way to do this or you know and innovate within processes that are already in place um, and and spark that creativity yeah and I think I can shore shore some of this up by saying if you're sitting there thinking about it if you're thinking well I want you know, this to be less expensive or this class to be included, then that's what we're doing. We've mm -hmm. changed costs. We've reconsidered that, not just the cost to apply, but um, what we demand of students, what the application will look like and how that informs us. We've reconsidered um, pay structure. Uh, we've reworked administration. Marin spoke a lot to the curriculum. Uh, so if you're sitting there thinking, well, what about this? We've changed that too. It sounds like uh, innovation in uh, in practice, uh, in terms of the process that you are going through. Who who do you envision will be the faculty, and where will your faculty come from? The community. <laughs> so that community, that definition of community, is very broad for us. We envision some traditional academics will wish to be there, and and we will draw on the community and life experience. Marin will always tell you. We want to value your experience beyond what academia sees as traditionally acceptable. So, um, you know, it, it seems very unfortunate the times and, and out of place, the times we see someone's 10 or 15 or 20 years of experience undervalued because they don't have the credentials mm -hmm. behind their name that the institution would like to see. So that that is a huge one, but everybody we've we've listed in our mission. So the Black community, the Latinx community, Asian Pacific Islander, veterans, LGBTQIA parents, um, and non-traditional students, different age ranges. Um, and I'm sure I'm sure I've students with disabilities. I'm sure I've left out a group somewhere, um, and I apologize for that. But those groups that we say we are serving, we mean that not just for students, but we mean it for faculty. And it's it's paramount to us that our students see themselves reflected in the faculty. Mm. Now, will students, uh, will their education culminate in a degree? Yeah, so absolutely that. Um, and, you know, when I was speaking of some of the traditional pieces, mm -hmm. there will, we will absolutely, you know, be a degree granting institution in that, you know, kind of traditional way. That said, to kind of go off of what Caitlin was saying, you know, when we have people coming in with different life experience or perhaps certifications that they've earned somewhere, um, you know, they have a, they, they're already a working adult and they have, 
a role that, you know, isn't in a classroom, so to speak. All of those things we will be evaluating in different modalities because everybody is also different learners. And we want to, we want to bring that forward too. that, you know, everybody doesn't do great just by taking an exam, right? So, you know, different modalities such as like presentations or maybe testing into something or, you know, um, student teaching to, you know, all of these different things you hear a lot nowadays about like micro-credentialing or badging programs. Um, we will have something very, you know, along those lines, but tailored specifically to our university and our student population. Um, and, and that's also, that's done intentionally for, you know, two reasons. One, again, we care about more of the whole bigger picture of, of a person, um, but, it's not just the students, it's our employees. It's gonna be all of faculty, staff. We want everybody to contribute and to feel a part of, of what Wright University is and what we stand for. That also said, you know, Caitlin says I harp on community a lot. I want the whole community outside of, you know, where we build to be in our institution. You know, I'd love somebody local to run our cafeteria that has a restaurant or teach a catering course or something like that, you know, down to the smallest, because we don't want to go in and take space away from any group. We would like to find a place where other people think like we are and hey, we're in a community, let's all work together. And and there's it, it takes away some of that power dynamic as well, right? It's it's more we all there's enough for everybody, right? And 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 everybody has their gifts and we would like to learn from everybody in that sense. Now how will the learning experience be delivered? Is this going to be campus-based? Is it going to be online? Is it going to be hybrid, a mix? We're gonna have a little bit of everything and, um, and, and we're working on different ideas and concepts around um, sort of constantly working, ways to integrate that. Where does synchronous meet asynchronous? Um, where does something virtual meet the classroom? Um, and how does that allow us to pivot, especially with the challenges we've seen in the last few years, should we ever face another COVID-like situation? Um, how can we be really prepared to pivot at any moment so that education, any any gap or any reprieve is come at graciousness for the humans on our campus. This is an intense situation and maybe we all need a week or two to pivot, but not at a lack of an ability to pivot. Um, so if you'll see it all and, and the, I think we'll play pretty close to the chest, the balance of what that will look like since that's still being shaped and, and may end up being very unique to us. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, I'll look forward to hearing more about that. What about all the extra stuff that adds to the expense of an institution? So I'm thinking about residence halls, athletics, um, you know, the, the campus footprint, the infrastructure. How are you thinking about those things? I think this, Maren, you, you touched on it. It comes back really, really beautifully to what Maren just said, which is we're focused, and it is a difficult thing in the situation we're in being in a metropolitan area, because the easiest thing for us to do in a, in a sort of pragmatic, traditional build a campus sense is to go outside the city and find a bunch of land and build a very classic campus. That's not what we want to do. And it's not also not the area we want to be in. If we're going to talk about serving the black community and the LGBTQ community in a metropolitan area, those populations are in the city. Um, and so talking about where we can get space and what that looks like, uh, I don't think we'll know until we find it, you know, in terms of tangibility. Uh, and, and we're open to so many possibilities. We've talked about retrofitting buildings, rebuilding, finding, you know, a parcel of land, uh, buying floors of a, of a building. There are a few pockets where there's land and we could build. Um, and I think that will be contingent on a few factors, what's available, but also like Marin said, community. It's paramount to us that we don't come in and completely uproot and gentrify a an area. It's not practical to think that we wouldn't in some capacity as white founders bringing in a university gentrify the area in some capacity, but it's really important to us that we do the work 
to maintain those populations, to continue to create space. And instead of ousting what already exists, include it in our campus model. Um, and, and that may provide a platform. Um, I mean, it's our hope. It provides a platform for, for so much more integration of the university into the community. So I have to ask how it's going so far, how the startup is going. I know accreditation is a big uh, initial hurdle. Um, do you have a, a target for when you want to enroll your first class? And other than accreditation, what else has to happen before you can get to that point? So up to this point, it has largely been um, compliance focused, which is, you know, what my my master's degree is in. So, you know, we've been doing a lot of state and federal regulations, um, you know, obtaining our our nonprofit status, registering as charities in order to do, you know, fundraising, uh, you know, national at a national level. Um, so a lot of that has just been kind of those, those very basic steps, right? You know, you can't do this before you do that. Next, we, we are meeting, we already have met with the state of Washington, the WSAC. And so we have to work with them to fill out their application so that we're allowed to open. So opening is contingent really upon um, working through that application with them and, and funding. Um, you know, we will need we'll need funds to be able to go forward. Um, as as far as how it's gone, you know, we started this uh, over a year ago with zero dollars and just the two of us. And you know, we've we've certainly consulted and had people, you know, pitch in and volunteer, offer services, and and we couldn't have done it without them. But you know, um, it's it's really been the two of us day in and day out. You know figuring out how do we, how do we get money? Where do we want to get money from? You know, um, how, how does donations look? You know, we talk a lot about unrestricted giving. Um, you know, it's, it's been interesting to start in this process because, you know, in, in trying to get grants or, you know, from foundations and whatnot, they're usually, their applications are very specific. You know, it's for institutions that are already started and I want to build this building or I want to start this program and that's what the money needs to go for it's very specific and tailored we're in a very different boat where we're like we need everything right um and you know we hope that when you read our miss mission when you speak with us um you know whatever information you know potential um you know grantors would like to give um, or need from us, you know, we're, we're very open in that way, but we, we hope that and trust that through what we present, we're going to do the right thing with the money. And, um, and, and we're looking for people that are, are kind of willing to, you know, take a chance and on, on a, it's a startup in a sense. Right. And, and I think it's interesting because in this country, you see startups being funded all the time, you know, there's shows like Shark Tank and whatnot, right. but you know, who's, who starts the university <laughs> and it's, you know, but essentially we're trying to get people to look at it's the same as any other thing. You know, if you, if you see a gap in the marketplace and, and you start a business for that reason, we see a gap in the marketplace in, in higher education and, and, you know, we're trying to change that. So, um, so yeah, it's, you know, we've, we've been very blessed with, with, you know, the, the welcoming and the, the consultants and the excitement. We've had people even reach out that are interested in teaching for us already, just from the press we've gotten. So, you know, we're, we're very hopeful because um, we can see it's already resonating with other people outside of us. Yeah, and, and I'll, oh, go ahead. I'll add if I can that I know Marin, you said our application with the state is so that we can open. I'll add just so people know very specifically, it's so we can be a degree granting institution. Um, mm -hmm. And that, you know, here is the first hurdle and accreditation. We have to have a campus, we have to graduate a class. So accreditation's on our radar and it's what we're moving towards. But like Marin said, we've got state compliance and we we need to open the doors before we can even apply for for our final accreditation so do you have a target for when you want to open the doors a dream date <laughs> again i mean 
Yes, I, well. <laughs> as, as soon as possible, <laughs> um, as soon as possible. But again, it, it is really dependent on fundraising and, you know, our approval through WSAC. Um, and a lot of these particularly state and federal compliance issues and applications unfortunately have been very tied up um, with pandemic related delays. So um, it's very hard for us to say, you know, we want to open in, 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 you know, next fall or in the way, because right. we really, you know, we really don't have, but as soon as possible would be the best answer I can give you. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. And, and the state, the state even, you know, we met with them initially during the, at the beginning of the pandemic and they had a, a rough timeline of how long it's been taking them. I think at the time it was around a year. And so we could factor that into, well, if we do this and we meet these goals and we turn an application at this date, we can expect a year out from that. And even just recently, they came to Marin and said, I don't know that I'd discuss a date, which is why we just now say as soon as possible, because they're now even, it's gotten worse as the pandemic's gone on, not better. You know, I think in some places, we have seen some improvement or a return to more normal functioning. And that's not the case with these state applications. They're getting further backlogged, which is pushing mm -hmm. our date out. So, um, you know, we're doing our due diligence to get it in and get it done so that they have it and they can evaluate it. Um, but we are in some ways, like Marin said, at the hands of the state and at funders. Yeah, for sure. And, and it's one thing to get to get the approval to open the doors, you also need a, a runway to recruit your first class. That takes yes. some time in the marketplace. So, um, you know, just in case there are, there are some listeners who feel compelled to want to make a donation, do you, have a, um, do you have a fundraising goal? I mean, does your business model say, for example, you need 5 million or I don't know what the amount would be. Uh, in order to launch, that's one question. If there's a financial target, and if somebody's interested in making a, a donation of one kind or another, how how might they go about doing that? Yeah, so we've got a couple goals in place because there are, as as Marin said, it's a startup, right? There are survival, keep the wheels turning goals, and then there are. Um, certain state expectations. Uh, the state actually delineates what we need to have in liquid assets when we open. So um, our short-term goal, we've been crowdfunding, aiming for a million to just keep us running. Um, and, and it doesn't, it's funny. We had someone tell us, you know, you should only advertise the things that are sort of like sexy things to donate to. And I was like, I'm sorry, I don't need like, we're just not there yet. And, and if I'd love you to come and say, well, I'll donate your science center. We'll take it. But um, it, the practicality is we need to keep running and we need to keep being able to do the work we're doing. So that's our low threshold. Um, 500 million is our target to open. That will build a campus and that will run us for about a year. Um, so that's a very, it's a very big number. It's also a very low target for us. Um, but it is, it is the campus. It is the hiring. It is all the technology all the innovation, the staff, the promotion for students, the recruitment of students and operations. So and that is about two to three years of a total budget, but yeah. operating with doors open, that's us to opening day plus one year. Yeah, and what does that assume in terms of student body, number of students? We, our, our model is a growth model. So our goal is to open at about 25% capacity, which will probably be around a thousand students. Oh, okay. Um, and I think Marin can attest to, you know, you asked how it's going. It is going really well. We are always met with incredibly positive feedback um, and a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of sort of, oh, there's no better time. You have to go do this. <laughs> so mm -hmm. we, we keep going. And I suppose we should add, you asked, we should add, you can donate on our website. Anybody's always welcome to contact us if there were a larger contribution and they, they needed to contact us. Our contact's available on the website. There's always a donation page. We've got donor impact pages and spotlights. So our website's always a great place to go to get, get some directionality. I have two, two final questions I want to ask. The first has to do with uh, something you've already mentioned, uh, and, and it has to do with uh, your gender. Um, I'm curious, 
if you have any thoughts about how or how you anticipate that your gender as co-founders will impact the leadership and the culture that eventually emerges at Wright University? And if so, in what ways? I think, um, Maren, we'll split this. I'll start by mm -hmm. saying, absolutely. And, and I think the fact that we're talking about it is evidence that it will. You know, the, before this started, you shared your daughter's enthusiasm. We've been contacted by predominantly women from all different races and backgrounds, but still predominantly women. Um, and so I think that evidence is already really apparent and tangible. The enthusiasm really comes from um, and the communities we're talking about representing and from women. So that we're talking about it proves that, that it's obviously important. But um, Maren, I know you also have some thoughts and, and have a history in gender studies. So I'll let you put your, your spin on it. Yeah, I think, I think it just is, you know, it's, as we were saying, it's time for a change, right? And I think we just bring a different approach based on gender and, and, and our lived life experience in this, you know, identifying gender. Um, so I think, as I say all the time, you know, we kind of look at the big picture, we look at the whole person, we look at, you know, it's not just about that student when they're sitting in front of me in a classroom. I have to think about that student when they leave my classroom, do they have a job? Do they have a family? Do they have a place to live? Do they have food? Do they have, if they had need medication or if they need certain, you know, services, you know, disability services, accessibility, I need to think about all of those things. So I think we enter into, we, we say all the time, every single decision about this university is made with equity in mind, because I think we bring a unique lens from, from being women um, and, and living in a world where, you know, we've, we've, had challenges and and also celebrations right and and we take all of that experience into you know every decision that's made because we have both been in institutions that were not made for us clearly so we want to make an institution where everybody feels that is there that it is made for them um and also be open to, we, we say all the time, we write our rules for them to be rewritten on purpose. Um, you know, our mission is a living document. It's gonna change. You know, we, we want input from other people um, and we want, we want to always, always be aware that it's not just our experience. We want the experiences of other people. And I think that's our gender plays, plays into that tremendously. Yeah. And, you know, I can't, I can't say that other women don't do this, but I can say for these two women, we really both lead with empathy and with compassion and, and space. You know, I, I was in, um, a, a conference the other day and this speaker, and she said, I'm going to ask for space and grace. And I, and I loved it. I was like, what a great phrase it, you know, it certainly applied to that. We were all virtual and, and who knows what could go wrong, but it's also, she brought it full circle in her, in her talk to, she was talking about how you approach your board and, 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 and that you can approach them with space and grace. And so I thought what a great way to really condense that. I, you have to lead in some situations very pragmatically. And there are other ways in which you can lead with compassion and with grace and space mm -hmm. and empathy. And so that's really, I think it's really a huge piece of what Marin and I do. So, and that's actually a really good stepping stone to my, to my final question, which really, I want to ask you to look ahead 10 years from now, you've been up and running for a few years. What do you hope to be able to say about Wright University at that, at that point? How are you gonna know, how will you know that your vision is being realized and maybe most, you know, most importantly, what impact do you hope to be able to know that you are having on the broader higher education world? I think, you know, we were talking about this um, the other day and, you know, we both had kind of very different answers, but, but come to a very similar place where, you know, my vision is to have that community 
is to have this school represent the global population. I want this people to want to be there. And then I want people when they leave to find jobs. I want employers to want to want them. I want the people that work at Wright University to want to work there. And that is, you know, some of these questions that we talked about today, you know, why now? I, I, I would love to not have those questions all the time. You know, they'll always be there, right? We're not gonna, we're not gonna solve, you know, all the world's issues. That said, it just would be really great to see some progress um, and to see equal representation, equal pay, and and just joy and pride about you know the work that all of us are doing together um, and and recognizing the humanity in in each of us. Um, that that would that's my dream. Yeah, I think. Well, one, I'll know we've made it when I'm back in the classroom. I miss students. <laughs> but um, I, I think when we hear the word can't as someone's perception of an imposition being put upon them, I'll feel like we've made it. I, when students don't feel like their hands are tied because they don't have the modality they need, when faculty and staff, let's, I, Marin and I, we had, it's another language intentionality thing that, that we should probably explain. We try really hard in, in the documents we put out to say employed campus community, because there is some divide between what is classically faculty and classically staff. But for the sake of wider understanding, I'll say staff, in particular, some of the impositions about what they can and can't do, or can they take the time they need, or can they leave early and, and meet the needs of their family or their kids. Um, I think when there's less of a sensation of that outside imposition to only meet workplace demands in the workplace um, and that they feel restricted in some capacity, when that really starts to diminish and we see people thriving and feeling like they are being supported and that they are achieving on their paths to success, I will feel like we're doing the right thing. I'm Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Ingenious You is a production of CHELUP, the Center for Higher Education Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash CHELUP for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free monthly Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Education webinar series. Be sure to rate and review Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious U community. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.